0: Well, history is filled with stories of foolish kings, foolish leaders, foolish leaders whose foolishness ultimately cost them their kingdoms, that cost them their reign. Sometimes it'll even cost them their own lives. I can't think of a specific example, but, but sometimes it's a king who overestimates his military might and he overextends himself and his army and eventually is defeated because the, the he spread the army spread too thin and he loses the kingdom or, or maybe it's an evil king who alienates his subjects by his anger or his hardness with them and, and eventually is killed by one of his own. Whether it's a leader who's so paranoid about being loved by his subjects that he speaks out of both sides of his mouth and eventually leads the kingdom to divide against itself. Or maybe it's even a king who values physical strength so much that he agrees to a powerlifting contest, which involves lifting a heavy bronze cauldron, who agrees to this powerlifting contest, and in the process of, of lifting that cauldron, maybe the king breaks both of his shins and dies shortly thereafter. Right? This was King Wu of the Qin dynasty. It's a true story, you can Google it. But but my point is that history is full of foolish kings whose foolishness leads to the dem- demise of their kingdom. In our story today, we'll see a king of Israel. And when it comes to kings in Israel, their foolishness is not primarily defined in the same way. Okay, so so their, their measures are not the same. The kings in Israel were defined as either wise or foolish almost solely on the basis of whether they heeded the word of the Lord or not. That, that was wise, that was foolish. Do you, do you obey the Lord or do you not? Faithfulness to the Lord was the mark of a wise king. The kings were to rule God's people as God's representative. The king didn't replace God. The king ruled as God's co-regent. A king after God's own heart was the standard. That's that's what the kings of Israel were supposed to be. Wise kings obeyed the Lord and led the people to do the same. What we'll see in chapters 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel, which we'll be looking at this morning, we're going to see king... Saul. We're going to see that the outset of his rule. And we're going to see that he acts foolishly. And just as his reign has just been established, he fails to trust and obey the Lord. And his foolishness, we're going to see, costs him the kingdom. He loses it. Right at the beginning, we're going to see the actions of a foolish king. A king who disregards the word of the Lord. A king whose rule quickly comes to an end. So we're going to see the fate of a foolish king. And while seeing the demise of Saul is going to be tragic... To add to that tragedy is the fact that in these same chapters, what we're going to see is a son of Saul who acts contrary to his father. We're going to see a son named Jonathan who acts faithful, who, who appears to be the type of king that, that would be right to lead Israel. And out these chapters, Jonathan is the faithful one who shows confidence in the Lord. And so as we see Jonathan positively, we do so knowing his father has just forfeit the kingdom. So we know Jonathan's never going to rule, though we see he would be a good king. And so that's double tragic as we read. And so we're, we're going to read chapters 13 and 14. I'm not going to read it all right now. I think it's some 75 verses. Um, so we're not going to read it all right now. I'm going I'm to read sporadically throughout. So, so hopefully if you, if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Samuel. Um, you're going to be lost if you don't have one. So, so take one from your neighbor if you know them um, and share it together. But we're going to be in 1 Samuel. We're going to look at verses thirteen or chapters 13 and 14. Um. But so, so let me look, let me put up what we'll see an outline. Um, so I divide it down, there's, there's five sections that are going to spread through these two chapters. Okay, so let me just, so briefly, maybe you can see them. Okay, that's 52, that last number, I'm trying to get the screen right. Um, but, but so let me just briefly, so we're going to see a, a Foolish King, Act 1, that's all of Chapter 13. Then we'll see a Faith-Filled Son, at the first 15 uh, verses of Chapter 14. We're going to see a Foolish King, Act 2. In verses 16 through 23 of First Samuel, then we're going to see a foolish king act three, in in verses 24 through 46 of First Samuel 14, and then the the concluding six verses is a summary of Saul's rule. Okay, so so that's where we're going to go. Let me let me open by just praying for our time. So so just pray with me as we begin. Well, Father, we do we do ask that you would now speak through your word. Uh, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And so I pray that our ears would be open. I pray that our hearts would, would receive this word, that, that hard hearts would be softened, that dead hearts would be made alive, and, and that that we, we would receive your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, so let's begin chapter 13 we're going to see the first act of Saul's foolishness. So I'm, I'm actually going to read the first 23 verses of, of chapter 13, so follow along as I begin. First Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now Saul lived for one year, and then he became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. "'Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines "'that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. "'And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, "'saying, Let the Hebrews hear. "'And all Israel heard it that Saul had defeated "'the garrison of the Philistines, "'and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. "'And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. "'And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel "'30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops "'like the sand on the seashore in multitude.' They came up, and they encamped at Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, "'Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings.' And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not even sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You've not not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and he went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him about six hundred men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onward, turned toward Orpha, to the land of Shual, and another company turned toward Beth Horan, another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness." Now there is no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul or Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So, chapter 13, here we are. Last time we were in 1 Samuel, we saw the rise of Saul, and we saw the fate of Samuel as the prophet. So so Samuel was fading fading out. And when Samuel, if you remember last week in, in chapter 12, Samuel gave his farewell address, and the one thing he did was he warned Israel to be faithful to the Lord. He said, you still are to be faithful to the covenant. You are still required to be obedient. Even though you have this king... You've got to keep the laws. You've got to be faithful. You're obligated to obey. And now, Israel, it's not only you that has to obey, but your king does also. And, and so that was his farewell address. That was Samuel's warning to the people. And it's in that context that we find chapter 13. And we find Saul doing exactly what he wasn't supposed to do. So what happens? What does Paul do that is, or what does Saul do that is so foolish? Notice verses one through four. There's this, there's a small victory for Jonathan and the people of Israel. So, so there at the beginning, the, the first four verses, Jonathan, he takes a thousand soldiers and he defeats this garrison, which would have been just a small segment of the, the soldiers of the Philistines. He defeats them, right? And, and, and so we know warfare, right? Philistines don't like getting beat, even if it's a small one, so, so it awakens, as it were, a sleeping giant. So then verses 5 through 8, the Philistines get everybody. All right, come on. This little Israelite tribe is trying to fight with us, the Philistines, so get everybody. And so verses 5 through 8, they show up. They, they gather 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore. And maybe you've been to the beach this weekend. There's lots of sand at Buckrow Beach, which is just one small beach. And so, so that's the picture created of these Philistines, this massive army. We don't know how many Israelites they are, but, but we know just up in verses 1 through 5, there's 3,000 of them. And at the end of verse 4, Saul calls some more to join him. He realizes, he says, uh-oh, we're in trouble. So he calls more. We don't know how many, but it, it's safe to say they were outmatched. And so notice their response in verse 6. The men of Israel, they see that they're in trouble. Right? They're, not, they're not dumb. They see that they're in trouble. So what do they do? They hid themselves. Now, he could have just said they hid themselves, but, but he, he accounts where they hid in caves. Yeah, I saw some going to caves and holes and rocks and tombs and in cisterns. And some even ran over the river to get to the other side. Right? So, so this, this picture of Israel is they are running scared. I don't know about you, but, but those aren't men, right? Those are deserters. They're not men of Israel. They're, they're scaredy cats. They flee. And notice how he records that the Israelites who stick around there in the end of verse 7. They're, they're trembling. At least they're following the Lord, but they are doing so trembling as they head towards the Philistines into this battle. Now, this isn't the foolish act by Saul. It's not that he's way, out, way overpowered and he's, he's waging war that he shouldn't. That, that's not what's foolish here. Going to war is not the bad idea. If you remember back in 1 Samuel 10... When the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, I'm going, to, I'm going to appoint a king. You're going to meet this guy. He's going to be the king, the, the next king of Israel. And he's going, to, he's going to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. So that, that's been, that's been the, the, the cause, the purpose of Saul even from the beginning. So he's been the, the, the Philistine killer even from the beginning. That was the reason he was appointed. So it's not, it's not a bad idea for him to think, okay, we can take these guys. And it's certainly not foreign in the life of Israel to be overmatched. I mean, that, that's been their life as a people from the beginning. Think of the times of the judges, specifically the story of Gideon. Do you remember his army? His army of, of 300. Right? They were up over against uh, 130,000 Midianites, and the Lord gave them victory. And so, so it's not that they're going up against a larger army that's foolish. So, so what was foolish? It was there in verses 8 and 9. This is his foolishness. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And and Saul offers the offerings. Now, the seven-day period, this goes back to the first time that Samuel and Saul met in chapter 10. And in 1 Samuel 10, 8, Samuel tells Saul, he says, now now go go on to Gilgal. Okay, do all what you want to do and go to Gilgal. And I'm coming to meet you. I'm coming there. Wait seven days and I'm going to get there and I'm going to tell you what to do. So he specifically tells him. Here's what you're to do, Saul. Saul's given specific orders. And so so they've gathered, and he's waited seven days. He waits the time he was told. The Philistines are approaching. Saul sees the situation getting getting almost out of hand. There's no sign of Samuel. The the people start running away, scattering. His army is is dissipating, so so Saul takes matters into his own hands. He says, bring them here. We've got to do this. I need the Lord's favor, so so bring it here and I'll do it. And as soon as he had offered the burnt offering, here comes Samuel. Right? Perfect timing. Right? This is this is the hand in the cookie jar moment. Right? So so he goes out to meet him. And right when he gets there, Samuel confronts him. What have you done? Notice Saul's response I saw the people running away. I saw that you weren't here. I saw that 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 the Philistines were were mustering at Mi'kmash. I saw that they were preparing. And I said, they're going to come down, and I'm not going to be ready because I'm not going to have sought the favor of the Lord. So I took it into my own hands, and I, I offered these offerings, the, the burnt offering. And that's when, Sam, when Samuel says, you've done foolishly. You've done foolishly. Notice the excuses of Saul. The people were running away. You weren't here, Saul, Samuel. You said seven days, and then you didn't show up. It's your fault, actually, that I did this. They were about to attack, and and we didn't have the Lord's favor. I hadn't performed my ritual function that I needed to perform so that the Lord would be on our side. But Saul acted foolishly. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord. The issue wasn't that Saul was unqualified to offer this offering. Some people say, well, that's that's the problem. That's not the problem. The issue was Saul's disobedience to God's word through the prophet. The command was clear. Wait for Samuel, and then he'll tell you what to do. Saul disobeyed a clear command of the Lord, and in light of his disobedience, in light of his foolishness, he loses the kingdom. That's the consequence. And so Samuel says, The Lord would have established your kingdom, Saul. Your kingdom would have been forever. But now it's done. You forfeited it. The Lord is gonna have a king after his own heart, which is not you, as you've shown today. He's gonna have a king that's set on obeying and pleasing him. This king will meet in chapter 16 in, in a couple of weeks, which is, is David, we know, but it's not Saul. And so, verse 15, so, so this is the foolishness. You've done foolishly, and, and the, the Lord takes the kingdom from Samuel. Verse 15, Samuel leaves Saul. Saul counts up his troops. There's 600 people remaining to fight. And so, in the end of, end of chapter 13, just highlights the massive disadvantage of the Israelites. So, they're, they're facing this, this iron Driven country, this iron-driven nation. The Philistines were the, the ones who had all the iron. None of the Israelites had them. So this is just highlighting, they have a lot more people, but they also have a lot better weapons. Only two Israelites have weapons against the multitude of Philistines who are going to have iron weapons. And so the advantage clearly is on the side of the Philistines as the battle is ensuing. Before we continue, let me make two applications just from, first, from chapter 13 before we move on to chapter 14. And here, here's the two applications I see from 13. First, I see the simple application, trust and obey. Trust and obey. See, Saul disobeyed the word of the Lord. He, he disobeyed, and his disobedience proved his lack of trust. Do You see that trust and obedience are, are linked together. And so he doesn't trust the Lord, and so he's not going to obey. As the crisis rose, as the situation got stickier, as things started to get uncomfortable, Saul lacked confidence in the Lord's command. He said, no, no, I know a better way. I'm going to take things into my own hand. Which is, which is quite sad because, because Saul wanted the Lord's favor. Right? That's why he did it. He wanted to go into battle with the Lord's favor. But he, did, he sought that. He tried to accomplish that or achieve that by disobeying the Lord. And so in the end, Saul thought that his performance of this religious ritual was better than actually obeying God's command. Do you see how, how, that, how that doesn't work? He wants the Lord's favor, so he's going to disobey the Lord to try and get the favor. That's not how it works. There's a trust and obedience that follows from trusting the Lord. So in effect, he disobeyed God in an attempt to seek the favor of God. And unfortunately for Saul, we're going to see this lesson have to be relearned next week in chapter 15. He's again going to have to be reminded, obedience is better. Obedience is better than sacrifice. We'll see that again next week. But the application for us here is simply that obedience to God that flows from trust in God will never disappoint. So obedience that flows from trust in God is never disappointing, even with the crisis rising, even with the odds stacked against you. Disobedience is never the best option for the Christian. Never. No Christian will ever say, I wish I wouldn't have trusted God and obeyed Him in that situation. Never. But every Christian... Myself included, will say at some point, I wish I would have done things differently in that situation. I wish I would have trusted the Lord and obeyed him then. Obedience that flows from trust in the Lord never disappoints. It's never regretted. We ought to learn from Saul. All the Lord is asking is obedience generated from trust. We can trust him. While our consequences probably won't be as far-reaching as Saul's, there are still consequences that we face when we fail to trust and obey. Well, then the second lesson, I think, from chapter 13 is, is excuse or repentance. It's an either-or excuses or repentance. So when confronted with his wrongdoing, Saul makes a number of excuses. Right? He, he's trying to justify his disobedience. If we're honest, they're not bad excuses. They seem to be understandable actions. But when confronted, when shown, you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, Samuel Saul doesn't own up to his disobedience. Instead, he seeks to justify himself, which is... The opposite of what he should have done, which would, should have been repentance, confessing his wrongdoing. Now, this isn't unique to Saul. Unless we're too harsh on him, think about Adam, the first man, confronted in the garden. What's Adam's response? What have you done? Was well, the woman that you put here with me that made me do it? It's her fault. And does he own up? No, no, no. It's hers. It's your fault. You put her here with me. If it's not you, at least blame her. Saul here sounds an awful lot like Adam or Aaron. Think about Aaron, the Israelites with the golden calf incident. When Moses comes down and says, what has happened here? Aaron says, well, well, we just put our gold in and out comes this thing. And so, so we just, we worshiped it. That's what we started doing. Right When Aaron formed this calf and said, this is the God who delivered you. right? Aaron refused to own his fault. He refused to repent. So Saul's fault, failing to acknowledge his wrong and repent. And so those are negative examples, but I think we have a positive example of what it looks like that we'll see in the future, which, which is David. He's the best example positively showing what a man after God's own heart does. Right? David would sin. He would sin. That doesn't make him not a man after God's own heart. Because being a man after God's own heart doesn't mean that that man doesn't sin. That's not what it is. So being after God's own heart doesn't mean that you don't sin. It was a matter of how one responded when confronted with sin. Do you know everyone sins? All of your leaders sin. Your pastors sins. Your parents sin. Your grandparents sin. Everyone sins. And so so following the Lord isn't a matter of not sinning ultimately. It's a matter of how does the leader, how does the person respond when confronted with sin. And when David is, is confronted, he's broken, isn't he? Psalm 51, one of the greatest psalms. He's broken for sin. He acknowledged his sin before God and he repented. And the application for us is that repentance robs you of all excuses. All excuses. Repentance should never be followed with the word but. I'm sorry, I confess, but. Typically, that's not repentance, whether it's before God or before others. We repent, we own our mistakes, and we confess. So we ought to learn from Saul, and we ought to aim to repent when confronted with sin and disobedience. That should be our response. Christian, respond with repentance, with brokenness. Well, that brings us up to chapter 14. So, so pick up there in 14. I'm gonna just read, I'm gonna read verses 1 through 15 here in chapter 14. So one day, this continues the story. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, he said, Come, let us go over to the Philistine, Philistine garrison on the other side. But Jonathan did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Hattibab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. So that's who's with Saul. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Verse 4 Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was this rocky crag on the one side, and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sinnah The one crag rose on the north in front of Mikmash, and the other on the south in front of Giba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we'll stand in our place, and we'll not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we'll go up, for the Lord has then given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison, they hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer, and they said, Come up to us, for we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, with which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people and the garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And so chapter 13, we, we, we end chapter 13 with this clear mismatch. The Philistines are overmatching over the Israelites. They, they come up, verse 4 chapter 14 we see Jonathan who, who is a a, a a contrast to what his father was here's a, a son who is unlike his father and so Jonathan apart from his father knowledge apart from his father's knowledge he initiates a small covert military mission so he says Let, let's go over this this garrison of Philistines on the other side and so as they're going they encounter this garrison of soldiers and, and so so it seems that they're walking through this pass and they see these two big cliffs and they see the Philistines this garrison over here probably a, Security. They're, they're overlooking, making sure, protecting the land. So, so Jonathan sees them, and he devises a plan. He says, come on, let, let's go up to this other side, and let's show ourselves to them, and let's see how they respond. If they say, you guys come up here, then that's a sign. We're going to go. But if they say, we're going to come down to you, then we'll know that, that we're not supposed to go. So let's go over there. And, and look at his reason there. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do you see the contrast? This is is faith initiated. Let's go. The Lord can save us if he wants. He can use a little, two of us, or he can use a lot of us. So let's just go and see. Jonathan says, we have no good reason not to attack. If the Lord wants to work for us, he will not be prevented by our apparent disadvantage. So let's go. And so this faith-filled son seems to be someone who should be leading God's people. And notice the armor-bearer with him. We can't miss him. He says, I'm all in with you. He doesn't say, wait, wait a minute. You, you're out of your mind. We're staying here. There's only two of us. It's not what he says. He says, whatever, whatever you want to do, I'm right here behind you. Just do what you want to do, and I'm here. I'm with you, all in. It's a good partner, a good friend to Jonathan. So Jonathan has the simple plan. They go up. The plan is carried out. They show themselves. The Philistines are amused that these two little Israelites have come out of hiding, Oh, that's cute. Look at these little Israelites. And then they called him. Why don't you guys come up here and we'll show you a thing or two. Come on. Come on. You show, you show yourself to us. Why don't you come up here? And then Jonathan tells his armor bearer, let's go. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And so the two men climb on hands and feet. Don't miss that. This, this is a steep climb. They don't just walk up this trail. They're climbing on hands and feet up this crag, crag up this rocky crag to the Philistines. And there on that, on that rocky cliff, two Israelites defeat more than 20 Philistines. And after the defeat, there, there's widespread panic. Something was happening. There's, there's panic, there's trembling, there's even an earthquake. So the Lord not only has given Jonathan victory over this small garrison, but the Lord is divinely at work creating this panic and this chaos. The Lord is working through this, this initial attack. The Lord is fighting for Israel. Look down there at verse 16. I'll pick it up. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin they looked and behold the multitude was dispersing here and there then Saul said to the people who were who were with him count and see who's gone from us and when they counted behold Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there so Saul said to Ahijah bring the ark of God here for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel now Saul was talking to the priest while Saul was talking to the priest the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more so Saul said to the priest withdraw your hand Then Saul and all his people who were with him rallied, and they went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great, very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before at that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had been hiding themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth. Avon. And so here is foolish act number two for Saul. So so the Lord, we see the Lord does save Israel that day. We just read that verse 23, but he does so, as these verses make clear, apart from the action of the king. This military leader plays no part in their deliverance that day. Again, Samuel is foolish in his leadership. Notice when when Saul is aware, so there's chaos going on. They're aware of what's going on in the Philistine camp, and he wants to know Okay, someone from our people must have gone, so count and see who's not here. He wants to find out who's causing that, and then he finds out it's his son and the armor bearer. And then he says, verse 18, bring the ark of God here. In other words, what, what Saul is saying is, let's consult God. Bring the ark here. Bring the priest here. Let's see what we're supposed to do. That's what Saul's saying here, which isn't a bad idea. But notice verse 19. While Saul is consulting with the priest, presumably figuring out what are we supposed to do, while that is happening, things in the Philistine camp get more and more tumultuous. So chaos continues to rise. The confusion and the chaos was growing and growing. And so look at what Saul does. Withdraw your hand. Stop consulting the Lord. That's what he says. Withdraw your hand. And Saul and the people then go into battle. Do you see how foolish that is? Here's the issue. Sensing that he was about to lose a golden opportunity to rout the enemy, Saul did the unthinkable. He ordered the priest to sus- to suspend his priestly activities before they were completed. This is an incredible interruption of the divine pattern, an action without precedent in the Bible. It was intended to enable Israel to win an even greater victory over the Philistines. So do you see what's happening there? Saul has a good idea to consult the Lord when the battle's raging. So he does well. Let's wait. Let's see what the Lord says. But when things seem to take a turn in his favor, when the Philistines are abounding in confusion and chaos, he decides it doesn't really matter how the lord answers the priest it doesn't matter because at that point waiting for the lord isn't the most effective thing to do in saul's mind which is foolish and so he charges into battle and notice when they get there there's there's chaos the philistines have turned against one another the lord doesn't need saul he doesn't need saul's men right the lord has turned the philistines against one another that's that's the source of confusion and they're fleeing and they're fighting one another the Lord is accomplishing his purposes without Saul. So the Lord causes a great confusion among the Philistines in the midst of the battle, and everyone decides that Israel's is the best team. Okay, shift in momentum, I'm switching sides. Right? So people that have gone up with the Philistines are saying, wait a minute, I'm, I'm an Israelite, I'm one of you guys. And then you have people coming out from hiding who are getting in on the battle, saying, Oh, yeah, we're chasing the Philistines. And in the conclusion, verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. So despite Saul's religious unawareness, the Lord continues to work on behalf of Israel. The story continues, verse 24, chapter, chapter 14, 24. And when the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, Saul laid on, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was, a, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth. For the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb, and he put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Curse be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Again, Saul shows himself as a foolish king. His army had been fighting all day. They're tired. They've been victorious, but they're still in the middle of this war. And so Saul lays an oath on the people of Israel saying, No one can eat until I'm avenged on my enemies. You, none of you, can eat until I'm avenged. Again, this is a fast. So, so he's trying to earn the Lord's favor. He's trying to perform this right religious fast. But he shows himself again to be lacking sense. I mean, the one thing the army needs, the one thing that they can't do without is the very thing they say, You can't have anymore. He's foolish. And so Jonathan, aware of the oath, he enters the forest, sees honey on the ground, he uses his staff. I, th- I think this is this this is, this is to remind us of of getting in the min. So he he doesn't he doesn't lose his his sense of awareness. He t- t- uses his staff, dips in the honey as he's walking. He had no harm there. Tastes some honey, and immediately his eyes are bright. He was refreshed. He this, he's rejuvenated. Someone sees it and says, "Whoa, well, you shouldn't have done that." You know what your dad said. And upon hearing that, Jonathan critiques his father. He doesn't hold back. He says, "He has troubled the land." He even goes on to say, This victory, you think it's great? It would have been far greater if my father hadn't troubled the land like this, if it weren't for my dad's foolishness. And so it continues, verse 31, They they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil, and they took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And Saul said, You have dealt treacher- treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. And it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And so Israel, they continued to be victorious. And by this point, they're famished. And so and so when this this last war that this last scene finishes, they see all the spoil from the war, specifically the sheep and the oxen and the calves. And so they've just conquered the Philistines, and here's all these animals that are good to eat, that are ritually clean. And so they just pounce on them and they start having a feast. Because they're famished, they haven't eaten all day. So they oh thank you, God. Right? So So they're having a feast. And so they don't care about ritualistic requirements, they're just hungry. And so apparently they don't let this blood drain properly before eating. And so Saul doesn't know this is a problem. It has to be someone saying, oh, oh, by the way, Saul, they're eating improperly. And so Saul says, you've committed a great sin. And so he says, bring the stone here so so that we can fix it. So bring all your animals here and and sacrifice them here so that the blood will drain properly. Then you can eat. So fix what you did wrong. And so he provides them a fix to the problem, and and they, they abide by it. And then, by the way, the author adds, Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he built. I think that's a shot at at Saul. This is the first altar he's built. So it continues, verse 36, And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But a priest said, Well, wait a minute, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For, the Lord, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there is not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. And therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me and Jonathan, my son, O oh Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if the guilt is in your people of Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and, his, and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked a great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from among, from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. And so after this feast, Saul begins another attack on the Philistines. And so he says, let's go, let's go. And, and, and all the troops are with him. But a priest says, well, wait a minute. Draw near to God here. Meaning first, well, let's ask the Lord. What, what are we supposed to do? And so Saul thinking, good idea. He does it. So he, he, he inquires of the Lord. But the Lord was silent. You see, he did not answer him that day. The Lord was silent. Saul's request is met from silence. And so Saul says... Someone sinned, not at all thinking himself. Someone sinned. That's why God's silent. He doesn't think, well, let's wait till tomorrow. Let's see if the Lord answers in. No, we've got to solve this now. So he calls everyone there, and he brings, begins this process of casting of lots. And he, he, he divides the royal family, him and Jonathan, from everyone else. And, and the lot takes these two, and then he casts between the two of them, and it takes Jonathan. He says, what have you done? And so Jonathan explains. He owns up to what he's done. And he gives himself over to the king and he says, okay, kill me. I violated the oath. I've done it. And Saul says, yeah, that's going to happen. You shall die. Now remember, Jonathan is the one whose faith-filled actions have gotten Israel to this point. Remember, it's been nothing that Saul's done. Jonathan's the one who started this whole train of events that's transpired and, and led Israel to this great victory. And here the king, Israel's king, the one who had made a rash vow and a foolish vow, this king... Is now ready to kill the one person in the story who's shown faith and confidence in the Lord. Off with him! He violated my vow, my oath. He didn't obey the king. He deserves to die. The one person who also happens to be his son. And what one commentator calls one of the most instructive passages regarding the limitations of human kingship: the king is overruled. Do you see that? He's overruled by the people. That's not how the the relationship is supposed to work, right? The king is the wise one who's supposed to lead the people, but here the people are wiser than the king, saying, that is a dumb idea, king. You don't see it, but let us just tell you. That is about the most foolish thing you could do, because he's the only reason that we have victory. Seeing the foolish action that was about to be taken against the man who had worked great salvation in Israel, they say, no way, not today. It would not be right or wise for you, king, to kill him. And so, much like the Philistines, the foolish king was also defeated that day by the people. The people are wiser than the king. The people are being led by a foolish shepherd. Well, I'm not going to read the last six verses, but, but the, the last verses, 47 through 52, we just see a summary of Saul's rule. So, so you can read that later. But the six verses they simply summarize Paul, Saul's military victories. And his lineage, and it's written as if the time of King Saul has come to an end. Now we'll see next week he, he's still king. He's still, so, so is this premature? Did they did they just in their, when they're copying it, they put it in the wrong place? Seems a bit premature, but but I think in the author's mind, it's true that this is the end of Saul as king. Yeah, he may be, he may be, he may fill the position for a little bit longer, but his rule as king is done. It's over. I think in the author's mind, he is no longer the true king. We should note that there are many military victories from King Saul. He had many military victories. The world would have said he was a good king, but the Lord says, no, he's not a good king. He was a foolish king who lost his place as the head over God's people. Well, well here's two closing applications, and then we're done. From, from, the, from chapter 14, I think we see, first, the dangers of religious formalism, the dangers of the strict legalism. We'll see more of this next week. But in these chapters, we see Saul attempting to do right things. Whether it's offering sacrifices or making an oath or seeking God's will, he's he's doing the right thing. But in each instance, he's preoccupied with doing the right thing so that that is what all that he needs to do is, if I just do this, and he misses the most important thing, which is obeying the Lord. And so he's preoccupied with, okay, if I do the right thing, I'm good, no matter what happens over here. So he he doesn't realize that by doing this, he's disobeying the Lord. His preoccupation with formalism did not lead him any closer to the Lord. His obedience to the Lord was missing a trust in the Lord. And so his obedience, it didn't please the Lord because he wasn't doing it from a heart of obedience, of trust. So it would be good for us to recognize our tendencies, like Saul, to perform right religious acts apart from a trust in the Lord. That's our tendency, too. Just like Saul's, whether it's church attendance, whether it's giving money in the offering, whether it's just being a good person... Right, we, all, we all have this, this tendency, I'm doing the right thing, and, and that's, that's good enough. I just have to do it. If we're not careful, this religious formalism can quickly replace our relationship with the Lord, a trust, a faith-based relationship with Him. And so we ought to examine ourselves in these things. We ought to learn from Saul's negative example. And then finally, we see the line of David. Now, we'll, we'll see this later in 2 Samuel specifically, but, but here I think we see in Saul's disobedience the start or the opening of the door for David, for the line of David. David is going to be the next king, and David's going to be a good king. He is going to be the king after God's own heart. David's going to seek to obey the Lord and lead the people to follow the Lord. But even with David, just like every other merely human king throughout the history of Israel, even David fails ultimately to be the wise shepherd equipped to lead God's people. Even David fails. David's going to have his own bouts with foolishness. But what we see, what we'll see about David, is that he becomes the fountainhead. He becomes the the starting point of an eternal line that will rule God's people forever. It is in David, from David's line, that the one true king would come. And so, David's line, it starts here. And so, so Jesus comes as the son, not of Saul, but he's the son of David. It's the son of David who, who also happens to be the Lord of David. Right? But, but Israel gets their king when Jesus Christ steps on the stage. It is Jesus who is the true king of Israel. And here's a man, a king with no faults. And so in Jesus, we see the shepherd that God's people need. And so in Jesus, we see the true king, the shepherd that is never foolish. So in Jesus, we see the good king, the shepherd, the true ruler who always obeys, who always trusts, who is always faithful. And he is the king. To whom we, as God's people, like Jonathan's armor-bearer, ought to say, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Brother, sister, we have a good king. We have a good shepherd who is leading us, who is with us, and we ought to labor to follow him. Our hearts cry out to be in the words of an old hymn. Lead on, O king eternal. We follow not with fears, for gladness breaks like morning wherever thy face appears. We don't know where he's going to lead us, but we know wherever he leads us is good for us because he's with us. Brothers and sisters, we have a king unlike Saul, a king who is worthy of our trust. Let's pray.